Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Tuberculosis remains a global killer, in part because it's fast-evolving its way around existing drugs. Tracking those variants and the infections they cause just got easier, thanks to a mix of methods old and new, and the help of thousands of volunteers. And one of the sharpest markers of revolutionary-era Iran was the quashing of culture. The hardliners wanted no non-Islamic influence creeping in. So why, under a new hardline president, is Iran celebrating Western pop artists like Andy Warhol? First up, though. In Parliament yesterday, Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson led tributes to Sir David Amos. A man who used his decades of experience to offer friendship and support to new members of all parties, whose views often confounded expectation and defied easy stereotype, and who believed not just in pointing out what was wrong with society, but in getting on and doing something about it. On Friday, the Member of Parliament was stabbed to death in a church in the small town of Lee-on-Sea in southeast England. As on every Friday, the Conservative Party MP was there to meet local people and hear their concerns. A 25-year-old man has been arrested, and the attack has been declared a terrorist incident. Many MPs are now calling for greater protections. In the wake of Sir David's death, Chris Bryant, an MP with the Labour Party, called for people to be kinder. He then received a death threat from a man who was later arrested. It's not just name-calling, but really, you know, vile uh, threats to people's lives, to their families, um, and um, to those who are around them. And, and we've got to change as a country. We've just got to change. Constituency surgeries where MPs meet voters to discuss local issues are a long-standing quirk of British politics. But not for the first time, there are fears these surgeries may be too dangerous to continue in their current form. Sir David Amos was a very long-standing Tory MP. Joe Rockman is a Britain correspondent for The Economist. He was first elected in 1983. His uh, election was seen as a symbol of the coming sort of Thatcher era and the growing Tory party appeal amongst working class voters. And since then, despite being an MP for decades now, he's never been particularly prominent. He is what is known as a good local MP in British politics, which means that he spent a lot of time listening to his constituents' complaints and their worries and their lives. And then he sort of would pick up causes which caught him, usually from meeting his constituents. What kinds of causes? For example, I believe one of his early bills was against the cruel tethering of horses, which was something which caused a great deal of agitation in his area. But if we do have a later debate, it does give the House an opportunity 
to talk about animal welfare generally, cruelty to animals and the welfare of farmyard animals. His biggest success was cutting fuel poverty, which was inspired by the rather tragic case of a constituent of his who had died in a cold house. And then recently he'd started campaigning on endometriosis because, again, a constituent had come up to him and said that this disease was very poorly diagnosed and very poorly understood. So he was one of the hundreds of MPs who don't get famous, but nonetheless do quite a lot of good by working on unglamorous causes. And this isn't the first time we've seen an attack of this sort on an MP speaking to constituents. No, um, rather depressingly, it isn't. We had in 2016, Joe Cox was murdered by a far-right extremist. She was also on the way to what is called an MP's surgery, where MPs talk to their constituents, hear their concerns. It's a pretty idiosyncratic British political institution, one that many politicians are very attached to. But the meeting with the public element, obviously, it makes them quite vulnerable in some ways. So we've had two other attacks of this nature. One was in 2010, which was uh, Stephen Timms, who was an MP for East Ham. He got stabbed by another Islamist extremist who attacked him at the time. And then in 2000, we had Nigel Jones, who I believe was attacked with a samurai sword, and his assistant, Andrew Pennington, died protecting him. There wasn't any ideological motivation there, I believe. It was a constituent who was drowning in debts and mentally unwell and began to blame Nigel Jones for his troubles. So these these surgeries, what are these meetings like? What are they for? Basically, what happens is that on a regular basis, MPs are expected to go back to the constituencies that they were elected in and hold meetings with their constituents. Sometimes they will ask for appointments, but sometimes people are allowed to just drop in. And MPs almost act as social workers in a way in these things. People will come in and go, I'm having trouble getting my asylum claims processed. I'm having trouble with antisocial behavior in my area. The road is riddled with potholes where I live. Sort of very simple things often. And I think many of them enjoy involving themselves in the lives of their constituents as feeling like they're making a real difference. As a result, it's become a very central part of their duties. But as much as these surgeries are a British habit, the the risk to politicians is, is certainly not limited to Britain. Yes, to an extent. In 2015, we saw Henrietta Recker, the mayor of Cologne, was stabbed in the neck by someone motivated by anti-immigrant sentiment. I should add that she survived. We saw the liberal mayor of Gdansk, Powell Adamowicz, murdered in 2019. In both of these occasions, they were attacked at public events, which aren't quite the same as these one-on-one meetings that British MPs indulge in. The closest analogy I can actually think of is maybe Gabby Giffords, the US congresswoman who got shot in 2011. She was doing a tour called Congress on Your Corner, which was sort of informal meetings with voters in her seat. So that's perhaps similar, but that was a bit of an innovation. It's not such an integral part of the political system and political culture in the same way that it is in the UK. So how to maintain that political culture, that, that quirk, and keep MPs safe? There is going to be a review into MP security. The National Police Chiefs Council is contacting all MPs to discuss security with them. And some MPs are saying they need to take more precautions. But on the other hand, many MPs are very resistant to this concept. Jess Phillips, who's a very outspoken Labour MP says she doesn't want any security measures which would interfere with her doing her job. Similarly, Diane Abbott, who's a black female Labour MP and receives some of the most vile threats of any MP, 
has said that she wouldn't want any police at her constituency surgeries because it might put off some of her constituents from coming. Uh, she has said that she might adopt a plexiglass screen of some sort. But again, the fact that it's taken, frankly, two murders for her to begin contemplating this, despite the many threats that she receives, really does tell you something about how reluctant MPs are to have anything which they feel gets in the way of them interacting freely with their constituents. It sounds as if, on, on balance, MPs are uh, are more enamoured of this kind of face-to-face contact than they are worried about their safety. Do you, do you think, even in the face of, of this attack, that they'll continue to feel that way? Look, I think it's going to be inevitable that there are some changes. Maybe some of them will bring police into the surgeries, either standing outside or in the room. There may be an element of MPs becoming a little bit more distant from their constituents because these security measures are a little bit harder to reach, which would be very sad to see because the type of people who come to complain about things to their MPs are quite desperate and really are looking for anyone who can offer them some degree of help. So in your view, no chance they'll be abandoned? If I were to inject a slightly hopeful note, I do think the sheer level of attachment that most MPs do have to this surgery or at work means that they are going to try and keep any changes that they feel would interfere with their work to a minimum. We like to criticise MPs a lot in this country, and some suggest that the sheer level of vitriol directed at them has contributed to the last two attacks. But most MPs are genuinely very dedicated to what they see as their role as public servants and public representatives. I think there's no question of these being abandoned, and I think that any measures that will be taken will probably be fairly minor. Joe, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit Moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Until SARS-CoV-2 emerged, the most destructive pathogen on the planet was Mycobacterium tuberculosis, the bug that causes TB. It costs well over a million lives each year. Mutations in those bacteria can make them resistant to the dozen or so drugs used to treat TB, and those mutations are spreading fast. Scientists are constantly playing catch-up to detect the new mutants and come up with treatments for the infections they cause. But some new research looks to make that battle a whole lot easier. Drug resistance is a huge problem for the treatment of tuberculosis. Slavea Chankova is The Economist's healthcare correspondent. Almost 500,000 of the 10 million cases of tuberculosis each year are resistant to one or oftentimes several of the drugs available. And it's very difficult to determine whether the strain causing a particular case is resistant to a given drug. But now we have good news, which has just emerged from a big international research project, which has found a new way of detecting any and every resistance-inducing mutation in tuberculosis infection. Why has it been so hard to identify those mutations, though? 
Well, the usual approach that is still widely used around the world is you take a sputum sample and then the bacteria from that are being cultured in a petri dish for a couple of weeks and then drugs are sprinkled on top of that to see whether the drugs inhibit the growth of the bacteria. That can take a month or even longer. And oftentimes it's not very reliable because lab technicians have to look at those plates and work out whether the drugs are working or not. And different people may see a different result. However, about 15 years ago, researchers using gene sequencing technology began to identify specific mutations in the TB genome that were found to be resistance-conferring. So that has led to the employment of PCR tests to search samples from patients for, for these specific mutations. And these PCR tests are the same as the tests that we now do routinely to find COVID-19 infections. So it's just much faster to look for these specific mutations using these routine PCR tests rather than just throw a sample in some drugs in a dish and see what kills off the bacteria? So with a PCR test, what you do is you take the sample and then you just put it in the machine and it can give you a result in as little as two hours. So much faster, but you have to know what sorts of mutations you are looking for. And that's where this big research project came in. So the idea is to figure out which mutations are responsible for resistance to which drugs, right? But getting the genetic sequences is only half the story. How do they test the various drugs against all the different mutated bacteria from human samples? So instead of petri dishes, the participating laboratories used culture plates which contained various amounts of tuberculosis drugs. After the drugs had time to act, the plates were photographed and then the images were entered into a database for examinations by 9,000 volunteers from all over the world. And those volunteers looked at the culture plates to work out whether the drugs were inhibiting TB. And what the researchers then did, they combined those results with full genome sequencing of the bacteria involved in each sample to work out which specific mutations or combinations of mutations were responsible for drug resistance. Okay, so now they have a long list of mutations thanks to the newer PCR method and cross-correlated those with which drugs work thanks to the old watch-it-in-a-dish method. But, but how to turn all of those data into a clinical tool? The results are the most comprehensive catalog we have on TB mutations that confer resistance. So the way this information will be used is for developing better PCR tests to identify drug resistance in TB cases. And as rapid genome sequencing becomes increasingly available and cheaper, we'll probably see more and more TB samples being sequenced completely so we can identify absolutely all of the mutations which are in this catalog produced by the research projects. So we'll be able to know whether a particular patient's infection is caused by a bacterium resistant to any of the drugs or any of the amounts of the drugs, because sometimes a mutation matters for that. And then we can have a really personalized treatment for everybody. And does going about it in this way have implications for tackling drug resistance in other pathogens? The whole model of the way the research project worked with the sequencing and volunteers helping to look at those culture plates, 
means that you could do this for many other pathogens. Antibiotic resistance is a massive problem globally. Patients in hospitals routinely have infections which are antibiotic resistant, and being able to quickly determine what to give them will be really life-saving in many cases. Slavea, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. In mid-20th century Iran, the avant-garde arts scene flourished. For years, the Shiraz Arts Festival was held in the ancient city of Persepolis. It featured cutting-edge Western musicians such as Karlheinz Stockhausen and Yanis Zanakis, and more traditional players, including Ram Narayan from India. By 1978, though, dark clouds were gathering, and the festival's 12th running had to be cancelled. In the run-up to a revolution that would come the following year, the art scene had come under pressure from hardliners looking to do away with any non-Islamic influences in the culture. So it stayed for years. The election of a hardline cleric as president this summer might seem like a sign that those cultural pressures would be renewed. Yet under his rule, Western art is making a comeback, particularly the art of one American subversive. President Ibrahim Raisi came to power this summer and Iran's art world rang in his hardline government by showcasing a retrospective of artists, including Andy Warhol. Nicholas Pelham is The Economist's Middle East correspondent. The anti-American mullahs are overseeing a revival of pre-revolutionary Western art. Which does seem extraordinary, given what you've previously said on the show about President Raisi. I mean, he's not an obvious mix with Andy Warhol. Yes, uh, Warhol is a quintessentially American pop artist. His paintings overall are subversive and sexualized and mocking of authority, not what you'd have thought would really be the taste of Iran's mullahs. Warhol ought to have been a particular bugbear of theirs because he was a favorite at the Shah's pre-revolutionary court. When other artists distanced themselves from the Shah and his entourage, he was feasting on their bowls of caviar and flattering the Shah and his empress with portraits. And in fact, this Museum of Contemporary Art, which was built in the last years of the Shah, was built in part to house his and other Western works, as well as Iranian works. So it's surprising you're seeing this resurrection of Warhol once again. And so why would Warhol in particular get a pass here? Morale is really low in Iran at the moment. It's been battered by sanctions. The local currency has uh, all but collapsed. And if the authorities can do something to revive morale, allowing a retrospective of Warhol might be kind of one way in which they could do that. Iran is a proud nation. It doesn't like to be left behind in the region. It can look at what's happening elsewhere on the Arab side of the Gulf and see the -the state-of-the-art museums that are opening there and just wants to kind of perhaps send a message to its own population that Iran is up to an exhibition of global standards as well. And so how has the Iranian establishment responded to this exhibition then? Surprisingly, deferentially, pro-government newspapers have run positive reviews. It was a particular surprise that you should have had this retrospective because on his first day in office, Iran's new culture minister, Mohammed Ismaili, vowed to purge Iran of output which he deemed deviation and secularism of anything really smacking of Americana. And yet he's not battered an eyelid. You've got officials in their lunch breaks going off and having a look at the exhibition and some are wondering if it's acceptable to paint Chairman Mao and others in this rather subversive fashion. How might Warhol have handled the eye? who are ruling Iran today. Might he have painted their turbans and their lips as well? 
And as you say, this may be about lifting morale. Do you suppose that would work, that if everything else is very tough going, that a bit of pop art, a bit of pragmatism will placate people? It isn't just kind of a bit of pop art that surfaced in Tehran. The capital does have a flurry of private galleries. Art and architectural schools are flourishing across the country with a majority of female students. You don't have legal nightclubs and bars, so the galleries can offer um, alternative venues. In fact, they attract crowds that kind of many art galleries in the West might die for. But there are, of course, restrictions. If you run a gallery in Tehran, you do need to apply for a license for each exhibit. Curators are liable to be hauled in for questioning. You've got an economic crisis, which is really biting and having an effect on the art scene. Galleries closed because of COVID-19 and many just haven't been able to afford to reopen. So it is a depressed scene and perhaps a bit of pop art can help revive memories of better times. And many Iranians do have memories of better times. The museum is a reminder of where Tehran was 44 years ago when it opened before the revolution. At that time, it was probably the most progressive country in Asia. So this kind of Warhol retrospective is as much a reminder of where Iranians were rather than a glimmer of hope for the future. Nicholas, thanks very much for your time. Jason, thanks for having me on again. all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity.